and please turn with me to Revelation chapter 17. Revelation chapter 17. And I oftentimes like to refer to some um, classical novel or literature as an illustration. I think they're really helpful because they relate to us. Right? The, the, the best classic novels represent not only excellent writing and storytelling, but um, those that have the greatest and, and long-lasting impact are those that also p- convey some kind of um, moral purpose. Right? They, they have a, a value that's beyond simply entertaining the reader. And so one of my favorite novels portraying the, the devastating consequences of immorality is Leo Tolstoy's Anna Karenina. Uh, the story follows the lives of two main characters. You have Anna, who is a, a, a disenchanted housewife, has an extramarital affair with another member of the upper class, and her life and the consequences of her decisions are contrasted throughout the book with the life of Constantine Levin, who's this sort of down-to-earth landowner who struggles with his own doubts of faith. Many think that, he, that Tolstoy was, uh, was sort of envisioning himself in Levin. Um, and so he sort of remains content with, with simple living, and his own decisions sort of are played out throughout the novel. They shape the quality of the rest of his life in the same way that Anna's decisions shape the devastating consequences of her life. So, like other popular Russian novelists, Tolstoy has a way of dragging out the details well beyond what is necessary to get his point across. All right, um, the the forty-page section that describes Levin harvesting wheat in the field was difficult to get through. Um, I oftentimes say that the the last one hundred pages make the first eight hundred worth it. And that might not sound like a glowing review of the book, but I really do think it's one of the greatest novels uh, that you can read. But thankfully, John's vision in Revelation 17 takes a very different approach to illustrating immorality. In a few brief chapters, Scripture reveals the empty promises of sin and the consequences of following the corrupt course of this world. That the vision portrays the fruit of worldly living and Satan's deceptive strategies to lure people in to that lifestyle and to, to distract them, to move them away from God and his purposes. So the focus of chapters 17 and 18 in Revelation is really the judgment of the great prostitute Babylon. It precedes a series of judgments that will fall upon the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. And these, these judgments fall upon them in separate visions. And yet we, we believe, just like the seals and the trumpets and the bowls were happening parallel, we believe these judgments also will happen parallel with Christ's second coming. Okay, but they are also tastes of that judgment throughout history. And so although the prostitute here is not technically part of that unholy trinity made made up of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, it's clear that Satan uses the prostitute to promote his church, promoting counterfeit worship. 
She's the false church, right, in encouraging false worship. And everyone is worshiping at all times, but it's, it's who they worship right, that determines whether or not they're, they're glorifying God and actually um, doing what they were created for. Right, and so as we read Revelation 17, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you for this chapter and these next few chapters that, that kind of detail the, the judgment that falls upon the evil in this world, or the corruption to your good creation and your good purposes that we find here should be terrifying for those who are not aligned with your purposes, that have not given themselves to you in faith and repentance. Lord, who have not, those who have not submitted to the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, these judgments really are, are depicting a, a future that is for them. But Lord, for your church, we see these judgments as the vindication of your people. We see these judgments as the, the magnification of your glory. And so we anticipate this with hope. We anticipate your second coming with joy. In fact, we, we join in, in the, uh, with John as he concludes the book of Revelation saying, Come, Lord Jesus. We're ready for your return. And so, Lord, help us to be attentive to your word that we might grow and benefit from your word as we sit under it. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Read with me Revelation chapter 17. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will marvel to see the beast, because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, 
but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour, together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, we begin by looking at the first six verses. If you're following along in your outline here, the first section is the seduction of the world. The seduction of the world. One of the seven angels from the previous chapter, one of those who had been pouring out the seven bowls of judgments, comes now to reveal further judgment. The great prostitute is, is sitting beside many waters. And those waters, in verse 15, are defined as peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. So putting that together, the, the idea is that this woman's corrupt influence spans the globe. Right? It's, it's worldwide. And yet it's ironic that in verse 3, we find that she is in the wilderness. John is carried in the spirit into a wilderness where he first sees the prostitute. So she's described as, as having luxury, as having all of this wealth and beauty, and yet her luxury is worthless in the context of the wilderness. Right? Who needs jewelry when you're starving? And so ignoring the obvious, the kings of the earth are seduced into committing adultery with her, according to verse 2. Babylon is the epitome of seduction. Really, it's of empty seduction. It, it holds out this mirage that, that people are seeking. It's a, it's a promise of satisfaction that always fails. And so... Inhabitants of the earth become intoxicated with her wine. And she traps people in a cycle of evil that prevents them from turning to God. And as they grow more and more accustomed to their sinful lifestyle, they become less and less satisfied by it. Right? It's, the, it's the law of diminishing returns. Right? If you take your, your favorite candy bar and you take a bite of it, each subsequent bite is going to become a little bit less satisfying to you. And we know this. And yet we can't stop eating until sometimes we become sick with overindulgence. That's what sin is. And that's the consequences. That's the empty promise 
of sin's seduction. So the woman here is arrayed in the royal colors of purple and scarlet. She's adorned in luxurious gold, gemstones, and pearls. And again, this is language of the priestly attire in the Old Testament. That's, you find the same terms, the same um, adjectives describing the priests in the Septuagint, the, the Greek version of the Old Testament. And so what's the, what's the, the implication of that? Well, this woman is literally offering the worship of your sinful inc- inclinations. Offering sin up as worship. And so it's like the, the sirens in Homer's Odyssey. right? The, the woman charms people to enter into their own destruction. And so she holds a golden cup filled with adulteries and she pours it into the mouths of her addicted lovers. Like Roman harlots, her name is written on her forehead, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. This is her identity, right? It's her name, her title. As a servant of the beast, she's Babylon. And she herself, it says, is drunk with the blood of the saints in verse 6. The blood specifically of the martyrs of Jesus, And so Rome, like ancient Babylon, had already claimed the lives of a few saints, and many more would follow in the next several centuries. The harlot represents various spheres of immoral society working together to promote the beast's evil state. So it's, it's immorality and tyranny. And these two always make a great team. And it's why the America's founding fathers were right to suggest that a morally corrupt nation would soon lose her freedom. I'd read the original documents, and you'll understand this. And no government, republic or otherwise, is capable of withstanding rampant immorality. That's why it's Satan's strategy. So Babylon offers prosperity mixed with all manner of immorality. She specifically targets the church. Right? This, is, this is where she's leading. Is she, she's wanting the blood of the saints. She's wanting the blood of the martyrs. And so that's the target with her immorality. Her, her wealth lures those who worship luxury. She offers her cup of abominations to quench those lustful appetites. Of course, she'll accept anyone's worship, but she wants to destroy the purity of the, of the saints. So that's why it's here for us to read. It's a warning to us. Right? And, and John himself marvels greatly at the scene. If you notice that the same verb marvel is used again, describing the infatuation of unbelievers in verse 8, the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to the destruction, 
and the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. It's as if John himself now is about to be seduced by her hypnotizing beauty. Right, the angel quickly rebukes him in verse 7, but the point is clear. If John marveled greatly at the sight of this bloodthirsty prostitute, we must recognize our own vulnerability to her attack as well. None of us are immune. Our seduction is one unguarded moment away. And so, yes, Babylon is more than merely sexual immorality, but it is certainly that. Right? The, the, the letter to the church in Pergamum rebuked them for allowing the teaching of Balaam, which included the practice of sexual immorality. So it's, it's language applied generically to, to all sin, and yet certainly it would include sexual immorality itself. The internet has multiplied Babylon's reach exponentially. Right? Half of the homes in America report dealing with a porn problem that typically begins at the age of 11. So we can naively close our eyes to that truth. That, that, that's just a fact. More than half of the divorces in America report porn addiction as a contributing factor. We simply can't ignore the statistics. And we could go on and on. We could fill the rest of our time here just looking at statistics that'll blow you away at the rampant devastation of pornography. Babylon is alive and well in the church today and her purity remains at stake. God's good gift of marriage has been corrupted by this false depiction of love. And the only solution is a Savior who promises to cleanse us with the washing of the Word. And the sanctification of Jesus Christ maintains our purity against the prostitute's onslaught. And so lustful desires can be transformed by a superior love that is found in Christ. And one of Christ's greatest resources to you is the gift of the covenant community. And in fact, it is the beauty of the bride of Christ that this harlot is so desperately trying to mimic. Look at the description of the bride of Christ in Revelation 12, 1, right, of, of being clothed in the sun, standing up. Uh, upon the stars of the sky. There's this glory that's depicted, of the, that's illustrated of the church. And in chapter 21, verse 11, we see it again. The culmination of that glory. When we read, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. That's, that's what the Babylon wants to mimic wants to lure you away from the glory that awaits us as God's people, as his bride that he is washing and cleansing with this false depiction, this mirage of beauty. And so Babylon offers a counterfeit 
beauty, when true beauty is the radiant church shining in the splendor of holiness. If we could see the church as John saw her, we would realize the superior love that conquers the fleeting pleasures of lust. And so the prostitute holds forth her cup of immoralities, but her charms will only leave your mouth parched for the real thing. Right? Imbibing in her evil results in ever-weakening desires for holiness. On the other hand, Jesus Christ, through the administration of the church, holds forth the cup of the new covenant in his blood. Shed for many for the remission of sins. Right, the cup of Christ raises our desires and purifies them. And so this morning, you do have the privilege of drinking from the cup that can truly quench your thirst for beauty. Right, drink from it and look to the cup of immorality no more. Recognize the empty promises that it offers you. All right, the alternative track is to allow the seduction of the world to lead you down a path of destruction, and that's what's described in the next section, verses 7 through 14, the destruction of the world. In verse 7, the angel snaps John out of his own marveling trance with a rebuke. Why do you marvel? The woman rides upon the beast that is bent on destroying our king. Don't you see this? But this vision reveals the beast's own destruction. In both verse 8 and 11, it describes how the beast was and is not and goes to its destruction. So the beast, which had been described in verse 3 as covered with blasphemous names, is now described as a counterfeit savior who, who was and is and is to come. That's the same language that describes the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord. And so the seven heads of this beast are seven heels, according to verse 9, upon which the woman sits. And yet in verse 10, we see that these heads are also seven kings. So five of them, it says, had already fallen. One was in power, and another had not yet appeared. This future king would only remain in power for a short time. The beast, then, is described as an eighth king. And so it's, it, it's, it gets confusing the more we read. Right? It's hard to, to picture this beast now as, what, is it a, another head? There's, there's seven heads, but the beast is also described in the same way as a, as a king. It's, it, it is hard to visualize. I don't think it's meant to portray a portrait of, of the judgment that awaits, but it's the beast as the culmination of all of these earthly kings that are opposed to God's purposes. Now, when we understand the context of the original audience, we immediately recognize that these, this is a description of what they face. This is a description of Rome. Rome was the city of seven hills. And that was like its name. Just like we think of Chicago as the Windy City, Rome is the city of seven hills. It had various examples of corrupt emperors, one after the other. 
And so Jewish and Christian writing even referred to Rome as Babylon. It's the, the epitome of seduction and evil. However, any attempt at precision of who these num- numbered kings are, it breaks down once you consider all the facts. And it leads to interpreters selectively ignoring some emperors for various reasons. Maybe three emperors are ignored because they, they had a very short reign. And yet, who, who, who tells us that they should be ignored? Right? That if, you, if you want to follow a precise numbering of kings here, as John is listing it out, he doesn't give us a clue where to start. He doesn't tell us precisely who is in mind as the fifth king or as the sixth or the seventh or even this eighth. And it, it breaks down as you try to be precise. And so if John is being precise, his calculation so vague that the church has never reached a consensus. If, as I suspect, he's using seven as a symbol of totality, then, then Rome is, for the first audience, what, what many corrupt states throughout history are to the church in every age, right? It's, it's, it's those who stand opposed to God and his purposes. And the ten horns are described in verse 12 as representing ten more kings, and yet these kings are, are sort of lesser kings. They don't have their own kingdom, and yet they receive this brief authority alongside the beast. These kings agree that their, their, their one purpose, they're, they're, un, they're united in giving their authority to the beast. And so they'll war against the lamb in verse 14, but the lamb will triumph over them alongside his own followers. So here's, here's kind of the summary, right? Whereas the prostitute corrupts through immorality, the beast corrupts through fear. And those not destroyed by their lust are silenced by fear. So fear is a motivating factor behind many of our actions. For me, I've wrestled with this for quite some time, a fear of, of failure that can be debilitating. Right? While it, it probably accounts for the fact that I never broke a bone growing up because I was too afraid of doing anything, it also explains why I'm ruthless in Monopoly and can probably beat any of you. Right? Uh, uh, there's a fear of failure, a determination to succeed at all costs. But on a serious note, the fear of failure oftentimes prevents me from taking even the slightest risk. Out of a desire to preserve and to maintain my kingdom, I retreat from the faintest threat of opposition. That fear can lead to a tendency to simply camp out, to be content to maintain any ground already gained, because if I venture out any further, it just seems suicidal. Maybe, Maybe some of you can relate to that fear. But regardless of what it is, all inferior fears simply play into the beast's strategy. Whether it's the fear of persecution, right? The, that, that fear of persecution, whether it's real or simply perceived, 
effectively eliminates witness. It effectively eliminates the witness of the church when we operate out of fear. It it eliminates your own growth and maturity when you operate out of fear. Out of a, I should say, a misplaced fear. Evil produces in all kinds of misplaced, of all kinds of mis- results in that. It's the culmination of all kinds of misplaced fear. So Jesus Christ teaches us that the only legitimate fear is the fear of him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Luke 12, verse 5. So if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then you truly do have nothing to fear. He has promised to bring to perfection the work that he began in you. So why would anyone fear losing something in this life that is promised to be perfected for all eternity in the life to come? In the new heavens and the new earth. And so God... He sovereignly orchestrates a chain reaction as described in the latter section of this chapter. A chain reaction so that the idols destroy the idolaters. Right, it's the orchestration of the world in verses 15 through 18. Since the prostitute and the beast's influence spans the globe, the vision that is contained here cannot be simply represented by Rome alone. Rome would have been the world power at the time. The original audience was reading Revelation, and much of what is described here has been shown to be compatible with Roman politics. The only problem is that it's also been shown to be compatible with other world powers throughout history. It's all world conflict that this great judgment was exhausted by the defeat of Rome, and that all world conflict since then is simply the aftershocks of that battle as we await Christ's return. If, if all of this was fulfilled by Rome, then ongoing conflict really has no bearing upon these prophecies. And our present battles are out of accord with the dominion that Christ and his church should be gradually enjoying. So are we to suppose, or are we supposed to assume that the martyrs who cried out how long earlier in Revelation, asking for God to vindicate his martyrs, are we to suppose that he answered them 1,500 years ago with the fall of Rome, but that the reign of Christ seems to be no closer now than it was back then? Right, many fascists, communists, and Islamic regimes have been just as corrupt and terrifying as Rome. The list of past and modern examples continues to grow as Babylon rides the beast across the globe. The church has been under constant attack, but as always, the gates of hell cannot prevail against her. And so just when it seemed like the harlot and the beast expanding influence will amount in their victory, we read the shocking description of verses 16 and 17. This beast, along with the ten horns, will hate the prostitute and bring her to ruin. eating her flesh, and burning her with fire. 
And we learn in verse 17 that this is how God will accomplish his purpose. Right? Causing these ten kings to hand their authority over to the beast. He uses their own corruption to result in their destruction. It represents the self-destructive power of sin. And we can think of Judas as a perfect example of this. Remember, Judas was enticed by the God of money. He sold the Savior for 30 pieces of silver to the Jewish authorities. And yet, once he possessed the silver, it began to eat a hole in his soul so that he went back to the temple and he throws the silver at the priests. And then he goes and hangs himself, filled with disgust at his own sin. The money never brought the satisfaction that he craved. Right? Sin never satisfies. It merely quickens our demise. John Yates, in his introduction to Jeremiah Burroughs, The Evil of Evil, says, Never until sin is seen and sorrowed for as the greatest evil will Christ be seen and rejoiced in as the greatest good. Hey, that, that's what we have here in Revelation 17. It's the depiction of Babylon riding the beast that serves to reveal the heinous nature of sin as well as the self-defeating consequences of sin and of evil. So, so we could summarize this by saying God orchestrates the collapse of evil by allowing its corruption to lead to its destruction. Right? The gospel shows us the penalty that all sin deserves in the cross of Jesus Christ. The evil of sin could only be conquered by the death of the perfect Son of God. And because Jesus conquered sin and death, he is presently seated at the right hand of God the Father, and he lives to intercede for you, providing through his resurrection life the only escape from sin's penalty and power. And so as we respond in, in song, let us, let us declare with hope and confidence, forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God, all the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do pray that that is the desire of our heart. And I mean that collectively, that our, our heart is united in Christ. All of our individual hearts are united into one by Christ. And this is our faith. This is what we believe. This is the gospel that we depend upon for life and sustenance. Lord, it is, it is what we look to to overcome sin and temptation, recognizing that it is, it is the fulfillment, it is the accomplishment of your promise to us in Christ alone. And he continues to apply that promise in our ongoing sanctification. Lord, may we recognize the, the terrible consequences of sin. Lord, may we see sin for 
Lord, may we, for what it is, as the evil of evils. Lord, may we endure all manner of affliction in place, uh, instead of, of being willing to sin against you. May we see even the greatest affliction as, as having some good in it in comparison to any sin. Or there is no good in sin. There is only evil. Lord, teach us to forsake the, the temptation and the alluring charm of Babylon. And Lord, help us to see the beauty that is held out to us in the glory of the bride who has been sanctified, who has been cleansed by her Savior, by her bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, may we trust in him alone for our salvation, our past, our present, and our future salvation. It's in his name we ask it. Amen. Well, I invite you to stand. Our hymn of response is, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross.